Welcome to the Glass Half Empty podcast on the Big Lead. I'm Ryan Glasspiegel. We are taping in Miami at Super Bowl week, and our guest today is Jason Fitz. Jason recently launched the show on ESPN Radio, First Take, Your Take, and it airs weekday afternoons. Um, Jason, what's your elevator pitch when you describe what the goal is of this show? Oh, that's simple. We take the best moments of first take. We take the best moments of Stephen A. We replay some of that to get everybody caught up. And then what we do is we take that conversation, we move it forward, we make it interactive. So we're going to have great guests that come on and give expert opinion on what the guys were debating about. And then on top of that, we get everybody super involved right away. So it's phone calls, it's tweets. We pick a topic every day. We make sure that we run with that from first take and we let everybody, instead of yelling at your TV and yelling at Stephen A, you get to yell at me for two hours a day. So it's a blast. There's a lot of energy. Um, let's take the commercials out of it for a second and like do kind of a pie chart as a proportion. What do you think is the ideal mix of Stephen A content, your own commentary, other guests and, um, just callers and, uh, listener interaction. So if I'm making a pie chart, the thing that I want to make sure is that my take is is the smallest part of that because to me my job is to be a point guard to serve the fans right mm-hmm. so it, this is much like a tv show in that sense when you do like when i've done outside the lines and uh, college football daily and live and things like that when you when you're in that situation you have to make your points really quickly right right so i treat it much like that in that moment so it's my job when i'm getting my point out i may only have a minute and a half instead of a traditional radio 12 minute format right so to me it's about can i blast through something say something that maybe moves the conversation forward i think the fans become the bigger part of that in every single day and you know i would honestly tell you that we've sat down and asked that question how much split should there be of everything and the answer is if we want to be true we need the best content so if it's a day where they got fired up i have no problem playing a long clip and hey we're gonna let them really go and let everybody hear it and get fired up with it if it's a day where the fans are fired up we're gonna give them the space to do that too so i don't think there's a there's not necessarily a map that we have to follow it's just about making sure that we get the most interactive experience so a big essence of radio is that it's live and this show is unique in that it's taking something in a sense that is already aired and repackaging it. How do you fight through that stigma of somebody thinking, oh, this already happened, it takes away the element of surprise and improvisation and so on, and turn it into something that is viable for that medium. Couple things, when news breaks, we handle breaking news. And we've already, I mean, in a week and a half, we've already had to deal with that a couple of times. So uh, when, we, when we've had things come down the pipeline that weren't covered on first take, at the end of the day, we're on ESPN radio and we're gonna do a radio show the way that radio should be done. So we'll always serve breaking news the way breaking news needs to be served. When it comes to the fact that it's replayed, I think we also have to have some acknowledgement that for some of us we sit there and consume all day so you're sitting here saying i already heard that but we also study everybody knows the metrics of, of this business long enough to know that your average listener isn't sitting there for six hours so where there are some people yes that will come in and say i heard this argument on espn two hours ago how many people are turning on the radio for the first time so as long as and that's part of our job when we're taking the clips is to take clips that we feel like are timely to what the arguments are still going to be as the day evolves and then there are also times where like Stephen a will call in and it's like an interesting kind of dynamic with him where he's such a 
big star, but he also loves to mix it up. So how do you draw the balance between being deferential to him while also arguing your point and trying to make sure that the debate can be as even as possible? Stephen A is the biggest star we have at our network. And uh, th- that's clear, right? But you don't him or SCP. I think the two of them. That's it, fair. It, 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 I would I would say I would argue that Stephen A is the biggest star, but I think it, I don't know. If, it's a little close, but it, that's fair. I'll give you SCP, and I'll say that maybe Stephen A is the biggest opinion making star okay. at our network. That's fair. But you don't uh, you don't get Stephen A's respect by being deferential. You be you get Stephen A's respect by being willing to stand up to Stephen A. And in fact, as he said on air before. Uh, in the last Stephen A. Smith show, when I went on with him and talked to him, he and I have talked off air. I'm a, I'm a nice guy, and you know he's he's looked at it and said, hey, are you are you ready to mix it up with people? I think the important thing to note is I've done first take in the past. A couple of years ago, I was on the debate side of first take several times. Like to me, the way you get Stephen A.'s respect is you aren't differential. I'll come in with my opinion and I'll state what I believe, and I think that's important if I ever want Stephen A. or the listeners to buy into the authenticity of who I am. I'm gonna go. Out, I'm gonna battle him. If he's wrong, I have no problem telling him he's wrong. You know, that's that he'll respect that far more than me saying. But did you think about? It? You know, that's just the way it works. You recently signed a multi-year extension with ESPN. Is there any? How, can you take us behind the scenes of how long does it take where your contract is coming up and you want to stay? And just like how many different emails did you have to field <laughs> about this until pen hit paper? You know. I think everybody felt like we were in the same, we were on the same page, uh, we were headed the same direction. So I don't know that there was ever concern, but it takes a long time. Like they start the conversation of, oh, we're gonna get everything done, but it takes months of of just little back and forths. And you know, I always laughed at athletes that say, I'm just gonna let my agent handle it. I always laughed at that. I felt it a little bit over the last year because you do have this pressure, you know. And, and as anyone knows that's followed my story, my wife still lives in Nashville. I've been living in Connecticut. We've been trying to bounce back and forth. Uh, this was a big moment, you know. And for me, it was a big moment for ESPN to lock me in long term. The, the statement there was like, hey, we believe in you and we want you to be part of what we're building for the future. So. Like it took months, and there were times where you know I got a little anxious, but I can honestly tell you I never doubted it, and mm-hmm. I can honestly say also, uh, for me, ESPN was always the goal. There are mm-hmm. certain guys like I came from a podcast, right? right. So there's certain guys that grow a podcast, and and they want to Clay Travis it. They want to go out and say, hey, I'm gonna sell this podcast, market my podcast, and be my podcast. I was never that. For me, the podcast was always to get me to ESPN, and uh, you know, frankly, the first thing I told my agent when we knew that we were getting near the end of. Uh, the first deal, the first thing I said, he said, where do you want to go? Where should we talk? Anybody you want to talk to? My first comment was, I don't want to talk to anybody. I want to be at ESPN. And luckily they made that really easy for me. And, nice. you know, I mean, that's, it's a little surreal. Like I came from a music background where, my God, there were times like most people don't even realize when you're watching, you know, the Taylor Swifts of the world, her drummer's on what they call show pay. So he gets paid when they play and he doesn't when they don't. I spent most of my life not knowing month to month if I was going to make money or not make money or was it going to be a good month or a bad month so to actually be locked in somewhere where I know where and how I'm going to live for years like that's it's it's weird it's it's weird to go backwards a bit I have another first take your take question so um uh, before like you had a show with Sarah Spain for a year or two and um you did some stuff in between like Golik and Wingo and various ESPN stuff and now you're on the show you're on now um 
from a creative standpoint, everybody wants to have like ownership over their work. And so I'm curious, how is it compared with with Spain and Fitz where you are a co-host and it's you guys going back and forth and like determining the topics in conjunction with the producers and whatnot. But now um, a lot of your show is kind of like driven by the framework of what first take covered how is like that dynamic to handle that's a that's a great question honestly um a lot of people believe in ownership you're right of topics and ownership of what they talk about and how they talk about i believe in i guess some level of <laughs> for, for lack of a better word I, um authenticity for me so i believe um i believe that the most important thing for me is that whatever I do, I do it authentically, right? And so I think, I'll go back to my music life. Yeah. Uh, the number of times in the music business you've had a massive hit and you think suddenly you have control of everything that's going to happen and then you go in to record your next record and you find out you have no control, like that's a normal thing. I gave up a long time ago on worrying about what I can't control. I worry about what I can't control. So to me, every show I've ever done, I look at it and say, what can I add and what can I take away from this? And so Spain and Fitz, like when I came to Spain and Fitz, I believe and I still believe that, that uh, the best sports talk radio to me is escapism. Sarah is the smartest person I've ever worked with. And she she taught me how to handle difficult moments. You know, So I, I looked at that and thought, hey, I can bring some levity to this. We can have some fun. But I can also learn how to handle serious topics. When I went to Golik and Wingo, all of a sudden you're in the morning time, right? So now, like, what's my approach? What do I want? And when you're on morning radio, I think it is about positivity and energy. How do you have fun? How do you, you know, but at the same time, how do you learn to carve these topics on a four hour show? So like, I took something away from that. So to me, everything I do, I look at what I can take away from it. I'm not worried about what the topics are. I'm worried about how I deliver, how well I do my job and how much I can authentically serve the people that listen to the show. And that's what, that's, more important than whether or not we're talking enough LeBron or too much LeBron is are people enjoying it and are people interacting with it. And I'll tell you a true story. The, the first day that we threw out the Twitter handle and I said, hey, here was our topic. I don't even remember what the topic was day one. We went to commercial. I, I went to my Twitter page to re, uh, refresh. And in that time, we had 256 tweets answering our question. That to me is way more important than what we're talking about. If people are talking with us, I'm doing my job. How, um, like you mentioned the metrics with like replies and responses and stuff, how, it's obviously a new show, but how um, much attention do you plan to pay to ratings and like podcast downloads and everything of that nature? I think, you know, people smarter than me make a lot of those decisions, but I'm invested in it. It is weird, you know, because my name's on this, right? And that was a really surreal moment when you, it's easy when you put out a song and hey, I played in the orchestra on it, nobody knows it, it's me. If the song stinks, it's not on me. It's easy, I can look at it sometimes and say, hey, you know what, it doesn't matter. If this show fails, it's not like, my name's on this. So mm-hmm. of course I want it to be hugely successful. We're going to do things as the show develops with the podcast to make the podcast a little unique from the show. Uh, you know, We've already started figuring out how we can get some extra segments. I believe that the podcast should be done a little differently so that we're serving a podcast audience and saying, hey, whether you listen to the show today or not on the radio, you'll still want to download the podcast. So we're going to find some innovative things that I've always wanted to do at ESPN coming from a podcast background um, to do into the podcast. And I think that stuff becomes really important. You know, we're going to serve every audience in every platform uniquely. Mm-hmm. And that is going to take some time. But I think that's part of what will separate us. 
You've mentioned your music background several times, and obviously you were in the band Perry and you went to Juilliard, so you've spent a lot of time around music people. And I'm interested, obviously you've got to be a big sports guy by virtue, like it would be really stupid to enter this industry if you're not because there's all sorts of obstacles and unforeseen circumstances. You like really just got to love sports. How many other people around you in the music realm were you able to kind of share this love of sports with not as many as you would think well i would actually think there aren't that many so that was exactly what i think uh, but that's why i asked (laughs) well uh college football and country music are synonymous so there are a ton like i always use uh one of my good friends is chris young who's had a hugely successful career chris uh is launching his own stuff on the side to talk about some sports and entertainment stuff like like there are a lot of country stars that you see jason aldean kane brown but a lot of the guys behind the scenes are a lot of the band guys like in general when you talk about a tour there might be half a dozen huge sports nuts and then there's 200 people that you know just have their head in their instrument for me you know, when I was a little kid and I was playing the violin, I'm practicing eight hours by the time I was eight. So eight hours a day, Monday through Friday, Monday through Saturday. The one day I didn't practice uh, when I was a little kid was Sundays because my dad's a big Raiders fan. and He didn't want to listen to that garbage while I watched the Raiders play. So he would go get a dozen donuts. We'd sit down and watch the Raiders. So later in life, I was at a master class um, that a violin, famous violinist that Zach Perlman was at. And he was talking about how he's a big sports fan. And so he's this famous, world famous, once in a generation violinist. And he was talking about how he would mute games and practice like scales and things like that while he watched games. I started doing that. So for me, sports became my ultimate release. And the reason I do what I do is because like music became business to me a long time ago. It was a business to me by the time I was in my early teens, you know. So like that that's the, the funny part is people often say I'm new to this this business. I'm new to sports talk, yes. But this is still the entertainment business, and I've been in that at a professional level since I was about 11. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm dug into it, and they're not that much different. So it's, I don't know that I shared that much at the time with everybody on the road, mm-hmm. other than people had to listen to me incessantly talk about it. But since I've gotten off the road, the number of artists that I've been able to reconnect with about sports is kind of funny. What what teams are you fans of now, or if any? I have a Raiders tattoo. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, so one of the greatest moments of my career was playing the national anthem for my beloved Oakland Raiders on the 50-yard line. So I have a, um, um, my right arm is everywhere I've ever lived and the things I'm proudest of. So there's the outline of the Raiders shield with the American flag in it to commemorate playing the national anthem. I um, I laugh, cry, yell, and scream during Raiders games. My whole week is affected by how Sundays go. And clearly you plan to stick with them through the move. That's yeah, not yeah. a deal breaker for I, you. Well, a couple things. Number one, I'm from Vegas. Oh, so wow. I got very lucky. Number two, I grew up an L.A. Raiders fan, not an Oakland Raiders fan. So I went through a move when I was in high school. Like, 95, they moved to Oakland. That's the year I graduated from high school. So I already went through. And I think Oakland fans specifically, not Raiders fans, but Oakland fans, forget that. That there's a whole generation of people that already went through one relocation. So, you know, for me, I just want I want my favorite team to have a beautiful stadium in a beautiful facility that athletes want to play in. So, yeah. And then... I also grew up a huge Lakers fan, um, so that's uh, lessened in my life uh, because I put so much into the Raiders as I got older. I, I think I paid less attention to the Lakers, but I'm a Lakers fan. Um, and as a kid, I was sort of a Kings fan because Wayne Gretzky got traded. My dad's a big hockey nut. Uh, but then when I moved to Nashville, I went to the first ever Preds game, so I got a puck for being one of the first 10,000 people in the room. 
and uh, I've done a lot with the Preds over the years, so I think, you know, so I'm a Preds fan, which is the one outlier to my West Coast baby. I guess most Raider games are during the day and most concerts are at night, but, like, what do you do if you're on tour and they have, like, a big game on a night, you have a concert? Like, how do you deal with that? You turn all the TVs off, you mute it, and you put everything in airplane mode. And then everybody on tour knows not to say or do anything. But one of the funny things, like I said, I mean, for my podcast, when I started, I would get music buddies to talk about football, and then I just started cold calling football people I respected to try and see if they'd ever come on and talk about, you know, music. So it is alarming, the stories. And like a lot of people don't realize when you see your favorite artist, they have little uh, headphones and they're called in-ears, and they're soundproof. So you can't hear the crowd, and somebody can talk to you in your ears. And so, like, we've had, I had several different artists, like Charlie Daniels is a big... Uh, Tennessee fan and mm. so like if he's playing during a Tennessee game they give him score updates in his ears so uh, you know and Chris Young was talking about how he's a Cowboys fan and somebody came into his ears and gave him a score in a game and he had the mic on and nobody knew that the score was coming to him and he just let out an expletive in the middle of a show so like there's a lot of guys that are cheating that it's different oh, wow. for everybody I, I particularly want to watch so even my first TV show for ESPN was on ESPNU Charlotte right. and I had to fly on Sundays so I would shut everything off I'd get to my hotel room Sunday night and then I would game rewind I would watch the game in its entirety from from top to bottom you know in the middle of the night that I it's so impossible for me to like not check Twitter and go in airplane mode like that it's I don't know it's torture almost. yeah it uh, will and every once in a while an app will still have notifications on and then you just oh that's the worst when you've stayed away from the world for the day but you know, frankly, wherever we were on tour, we always, like, I remember watching huge moments in, you know, Europe, and it's like, I go into a sports bar, an NFL bar in Italy, and the time frame is so different that to watch the Sunday night game, it came on at like three in the morning in Italy, so we spent all night in a bar over there, so, you know, it's wherever I've always been, I've tried to find it. When you're a kid growing up in Vegas, who are the sports media personalities that really resonate with you? I've never been asked that. That is a that is a badass question. Thank um, you. So for me, again, I'm old, right? So that old. I was, I'm preface it, but I'm 42, which means um, people don't realize what the world was like when I was a kid. This is my old man statement, right? But used to watch AFC games were on NBC, and NBC had a 10-minute ticker. And the only way you ever got the score, like if the Raiders weren't on TV, the only way I got the score was every 10 minutes they put up a ticker. And so for me, on Sunday nights, George Michael's sports machine was everything. Because George Michael's sports machine, we didn't have cable when I was little. Um, George Michael's sports machine was my way of actually seeing a Raiders highlight if I didn't watch the game. Uh, as I as I got older, NFL primetime was everything because that's the way I got to watch yeah. actual highlights. But the funny thing is, I would go to the corner store um, every Friday and buy a USA Today because they had little previews and there might be a picture of the Raiders in it. And then on Mondays, they had the recap. So I had to do a lot of it. A lot of that way, but George Michael, uh, George Michael Sports Machine was was life when I was little. It is crazy. I don't think people who are probably younger than me even realize what it was like to have to rely on like a TV ticker to like see what the score was the night before. And I remember on Sundays it was absolute torture during college football season because they'd be going through like I don't know Furman FAU and it would take like a half hour to get through all the college football scores so if you're looking for like a baseball score or an NBA score you like really if you miss it you missed it by a lot oh it was the worst if you were in the car and you had it on and somebody talked over it and you were like oh son of a come on man oh it was the worst 
like that the, they tried like the ESPN phone and stuff, and there were like there were like you used to, there there were services where you had to like call them to find like I don't think that was ESPN, there's other people, but like to George, call for George the score. George had one. I I used one, and so we moved across country when I was little, and I remember I the Raiders had played a Sunday night game. And uh, or Sunday late game. I was, somehow I hadn't seen this. It might have been a Monday night game actually. So it was a Tuesday morning because Sunday night football doesn't exist. So it was a Monday night game. I wake up super early Tuesday morning because I hadn't seen the game, and I go to call the hotline and I like dialed the wrong number. So I actually called somebody's house and I hung up because I was a little kid and I felt stupid that I called somebody's house at like five in the morning. They called back and they like yelled at me. They did like the Star 69 thing. They were yelling at me on the phone for waking them up and hanging up. And I was like, I was just trying to get the Raiders score. So, yeah. Was there anybody like in the sports talk radio realm that you gravitated towards? Because obviously that's what you're doing now. Well, yeah. So when I decided I wanted to get into this, I looked at who whose work sort of hit me the most. And so Colin Coward um, is absolutely like... I've done a lot of solo hosting in my career so far in my limited time, and I always look at the pacing and the way Colin delivers things that I thought was really powerful, I think is really powerful. Uh, Dan Patrick interviews everybody better than anybody, uh, we all know that, so those guys have been big influences, and frankly, I tell this story embarrassingly to them all the time, but the first time I was walking through the halls, and I had just done a TV show with Golick Jr., and Michael Sr. walked by and he was like, hey, you did a nice job on that TV show. That was an epic moment for me because Mike and Mike, you know, you think about my time on the road. I woke up every morning and like when I would go run, I'd put Mike and Mike on. So like it's it's crazy to call the Golich friends now when they've been such, you know, a part of, he's been such a part of my life for a long time. Hey, um, have you seen any indications to disprove the idea that Golic is a witch who is aging in reverse? <laughs> I'm telling you, man, he he looks good. Like, he's in better shape than ever. And, you know, like, they, they joke about the Orange Theory thing, but I keep thinking I got to go in there because I'm not sure. I think you're right. Like, there must be, like, a Buddha that you rub or something, and all of a sudden you just get in better shape because I'm telling you, he looks, he's, he's in better shape than Junior is at this point, which is crazy. Um, so you mentioned earlier that you're living apart from your wife. She's in Nashville. You're in Connecticut. How do you navigate that challenge? Uh, you don't. You just sort of day by day. Um, I mean, I spent so long on tour. We're used to having separated times, you know, but uh, I don't know that there's ever an easy answer to that because the thing of it is what I I've always said this and hopefully people appreciate that it's it's said from the right spot. But a lot of people will question how I got where I was because they don't know the full story of the grind that I put in. And that's mm-hmm. fine. Once I got there, nobody's going to question how I've gotten where I am now. And right. I've done that by, frankly, working my butt off. Every Everything, the, the number of 18-hour days I have on campus is real, you know. And that's because I take every opportunity they put in front of me. And that's what I've always done. The number of times I've slept on my Gullick Senior's floor before he got a couch in his office, like because I would finish SportsCenter on Snapchat at two in the morning and have to turn around and do morning radio an hour and a half later. Like, So in the on the one hand, it's been nice that I haven't had to worry about I should get home, she's adjusting too. On the other hand, because I, you know, we added College Game Day, Countdown to Game Day was a digital show that had 22 million views this fall and that was me, Maria, and Pollock, but that meant that I had to fly every Thursday to wherever we were gonna be. I would get up in the morning, I would do Go Look and Wingo, first and last to Go Look and Wingo by myself from the game day set, and then production meetings, pre-tapes, work all day, then do game day, and then fly home Sunday. So from August until the weekend of Christmas, I didn't have a day off. So 
I don't know how you navigate that when you're in two different cities, but we also know that this is my passion and this is my drug and this is everything. So, you know, we, yeah. we put everything into it. Um, I guess, where do you live in Connecticut? Because I grew up there. Oh, uh, just, we literally, now that we have a little bit of forward thinking, we just bought a house in New Britain. Oh, so, cool. Yeah, we just uh, we just found something and, you know, it gives us a little stability for a little while. Nice. And so, like, what what's the sports story right now that you're just, like, most obsessed with and interested in and like cannot discuss enough um that's also you've got you got some killer questions i i think look so i'm gonna go with two different answers um number one on a sad note uh, obviously the passing of kobe was something that hit me it hit a lot of people i i don't know that i did a particularly good show that day but i did a particularly honest show and um, you know, there's something about ugly crying on TV that I think we're all trying to figure out how to process through that. I think what hits me about that and where the conversation is going to linger is that we have no idea how a group of men are going to react to that in a locker room. And we just presume that, you know, when they play, all is going to be well with the world. I don't know that that's a safe presumption. And so now a team that has championship expectations because no one's going to ever give LeBron an excuse for anything. He's got to figure out how to compartmentalize grief, all grief the same way, and move forward. I, I think that's tremendously difficult. So, I'm like, I, I don't think we can talk about the Lakers enough moving forward because if they fall apart, there's a human element to why that I think people need to hear. It humanizes the emotion so many people feel. If they don't fall apart, then I think that it, it absolutely says something about the legacy of the leaders in that locker room and their ability to pull people together. So that is story number one. Story number two, because I've done so much work around it and it's maybe my favorite event, is I cannot talk about the draft enough. I've never been able to talk about the draft enough. Um, last year, I did a show with Junior and Mina and uh, Field and Dominique on the digital side. Had over 10 million viewers. We did 17 straight hours of coverage with no commercials. Uh, we're proud of what we do for the draft on the digital side. The draft going to Vegas is going to be a significant moment, not just because I'm from Vegas, but also importantly because it goes to Cleveland next year. So what you had is Nashville followed by Vegas, two of the biggest party cities in the country at this point that are trying to one-up themselves. And then Cleveland's number three. And then Cleveland. <laughs> and I'm not sure what, like, no disrespect to Cleveland, uh, especially the Golics, but I'm not sure what Cleveland's going to do to keep up. But I think that what we're going to see... Yeah, there's going to be so many passionate fans. The way in Nashville that it was just such a gorgeous image of all of the football fans just lining the streets in a sea of people. Cleveland is going to be like that. Like Green Bay would be like that. And I don't know. There's something to be said for going somewhere where your arrival there is like really special. Whereas like when the draft was in New York, like there's a thousand things like that in New York and you go outside and then you don't even realize the draft is there. Well, I think to that point, the reason the Cleveland draft is particularly important is because I envision a world with no inside knowledge. I just envision this makes business sense to me, so I would think Roger Goodell sees it the same way. Vegas has no no business hosting a draft after this one. They get one because they got a new team, fine. In the future, it feels like all of the markets that are desperate and really deserving of the Super Bowl but won't get one because of the weather situation become the immediate draft cities. So Cleveland, you mentioned Green Bay, Denver, Buffalo. Kansas City, Buffalo, places where people are fanatical like that's the opportunity that the draft is going to present so what i hope is that nashville and vegas don't set this 
strange standard that suddenly takes away from what the draft could be, which to your point is magical for cities that deserve the opportunity to host it. And then Green Bay may be tricky with the hotels, but it would be, um, I don't know, well, it would be a great the tri- scene. The trickiest part about it is day two and day three, because anybody can come in for day one. When we were prepping the draft in Nashville, having lived there for 20 years, I kept telling everybody, hey, the draft in Nashville is going to be massive all weekend. The reason being, hotel rooms are astronomically expensive. And it's a destination city. So nobody's going to go into Nashville for Thursday night and then be like, all right, I'm out, right? Like you stay for the weekend, you get drunk all weekend. I get that. They'll do the same thing in Vegas. Will they stay for round six and seven in Cleveland? We have to find yeah, a way for that I to happen. I think they will. I, I hope they will because I, like, I think that's the other thing that this year we're going to be enamored with what the draft does in Vegas. And I'm going to sort of throw up a flag of caution to that because the draft could be special for cities that deserve it. How often do you get recognized on the street? Um, this will sound weird. Probably five to one. It's more often for Snapchat than anything. And, and that actually isn't surprising to me. It's The funny thing is when I first got offered to come to ESPN, they said, hey, we're going to have you do Spain and Fitz. Also, we want you to be one of the hosts on SportsCenter on Snapchat. I was like, awesome, great. And then, I don't think I'm telling any dirty secret here, I called one of my friends and said, how do you use Snapchat? Because, I mean, like I said, I'm a 42-year-old guy. Like, I'm not on Snapchat very often. And so I got the the sort of info on it, and I looked at it, and we sat down, and I met with everybody. I'm like, who's watching this? And it's kids 13 to 26, right, that want their their sports and quick digestible blasts. And with dog ears. uh, (laughs) They do. But, you know, the funny, funniest story to me is last year we were at the national championship game. We were going to a party and it was me and Junior and Trevor Scales, who uh, does some great work with ESPN. But he does a lot of work on Snapchat. And somebody walked up to Junior and said, hey, will you take a picture? And he said, yeah. They handed Mike the the the. Uh, phone and Mike's by far had the biggest platform of all of us at the time, especially handed Mike the phone. They wanted a picture of them with Trevor because Trevor's on Snapchat all the time. When we were walking around the field this year in uh, in New Orleans for the championship game, Gary Streisky, who's one of our prominent Sports Center Snapchat hosts, I mean, he was being mobbed everywhere he went as kids were like, "Hey, love you on Snapchat." I I get recognized more for that. So it's funny in the airport, it's usually somebody that watches Go Look at Wingo. In like in just walking out and about in society, it's usually a kid that watches on Snapchat. Mike and I did the um, we did the Major League Baseball home run contest a few years ago. We're sitting at a bar after we were done with work, we're just having a good time, and a group of guys walked up and they were like, "Hey, do you mind? Our kids are over here and they want to get a picture with you guys because of Snapchat." And Mike was doing it a lot at the time too. So it shows you the power, and it's one of the reasons that no matter what happens with my profile at radio, I'm going to continue busting my butt on. The yeah, there's so many just different platforms well, that you can reach people on. And if you want to be the next whatever at our network, if you want to have the widest reach possible, I believe that the days of coming in and hosting one show and going home are done. Like that now you have to say, hey, how can I find space in digital? How can I find space on Plus? How can I find space on uh, Snap? And how can I find space on radio and TV? And that means you just got to work harder than everybody. But that's what I think you're seeing, not just from me, but you're also seeing it from the meanest of the world and the Clinton Yates and the Dominique Foxworth. Like, look at the, the people that have continually risen. And it's not it's not as simple as get up and get on, get up, and you're a star. It's get on, get up, but also what are you doing on the podcast side? What are you doing on the first take side? And what are you doing on the radio side? So it's a combination of all of it. Like, it's, it's sort of death by a thousand slight cuts. I think you have to get... You wear fans down and like, hey, you're going to see me everywhere, get to know me. 
Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you're just absolutely dying to talk about right now? Uh, Derek Carr is going to be the quarterback of the uh, Oakland Raiders, of the Las Vegas Raiders next year. 100% sure that, that, that Carr is going to be the quarterback. Uh, uh, I'll bet you a drink that, that, that he won't be. Oh, I will take that. Keep going with the I can't believe I heard that you partied pretty hard last night. I'm uh, just saying. I always party hard. I always party Fair hard. Fair enough. We'll see you later. <laughs> um, they, oh, so here, here's what I keep telling everybody. This is my sports knowledge bit of the, the year, I think, in my eyes. we got to stop looking at the quarterback position in a vacuum. And we have to ask ourselves, if not him, then who? Right? And so there are a handful of teams in a really strange situation. The Raiders are one where if they're not going to bring Carr in, then they're sitting with the 12th and 19th picks in the draft, at which point it is not likely that they'll get an epic you know, starting quarterback that they can build their franchise around. Mm-hmm. So if they're going to let Carr walk, is it to bring in Mariota or Tannehill or uh, you know, or Jameis Winston, like Dalton? At the end and of the there's day. There's three big name free agent quarterbacks that you somehow Brady, left out. Brady's going to go back to New England. <laughs> Uh-huh. Breeze is going to go back to New Orleans. Who's uh-huh. the third one? Rivers. Oh, River. I wouldn't take Rivers. Rivers over. probably going to the Bucks, but you wouldn't take him uh, over Derek Carr. No, no. I've I think I would. I I will say this as a Raiders fan. I don't remember the last time I watched Philip Rivers and thought, Oh God, Rivers is so good. We're never going to stop him. Yeah, the thing is though, the Chargers organization is like so wretched that you have to grade him on a curve. Well, that also fair. I will add to that though, the Raiders organization hasn't been much better and. Car only costs about 21 million bucks, which right. at this point, that, is that's a bargain for that's a starting a, right. I think that if if anything, they they draft somebody at some point that they think they can develop, or they I wouldn't be surprised if they do reach out to somebody like a Mariota and bring him in and see if over time he can develop into a starter. But Car will be, I Car gets one more year in the with the Raiders. There's your hot take. Thank you, thank you very much. This has been the Glass Half Empty podcast on the Big Weed. Check out Jason Fitz on First Take, Your Take, and any of the several thousand ESPN <laughs> digital platforms that he appears on.